Good morning, everyone. Hello. I'm, I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Um, thanks you all for being here. Thanks to our conference staff for uh, their help in running these events. Thanks to those of you watching online at Cato.org. Uh, today we're going to talk about Libya. Uh, three years ago today, on March, 11, uh, March 19th, 2011, the United States and 19 allied states launched an air assault against the Libyan military. President Obama and other leaders argued that military action would protect Libyan citizens, civilians, aid the progress of democracy there and across the region, and buttress the credibility of the UN Security Council, which had passed a resolution demanding a ceasefire. By October 2011, rebels had killed Libya's longtime leader, Muammar Gaddafi, and overthrown his government. Three years later, we've, asked, we're, we've assembled here to ask the question, a set of questions really, uh, whether the intervention worked. First of all, did it protect Libyans, or by prolonging the civil war and creating political chaos, heighten their suffering? Is Libya becoming a stable democracy, a failed state, or something else? Did the, uh, did the intervention help other revolutions in the region, heighten repression of them, or was it simply irrelevant? And lastly, how does the Libyan intervention inform current US foreign policy? Should the United States help overthrow other Middle, East Middle Eastern dictators, or does Libya teach that the costs and risks are greater than the benefits? Uh, I think the panelists assembled here are uniquely qualified to help us sort through these questions. Let me introduce them in the order in which they will speak today. Our first speaker is Alan J. Cooperman. He is uh, a Jennings Randolph Senior Fellow at the United States Institute of Peace. In his project there, entitled Humanitarian Blowback, Lessons for Future Intervention, he investigates the success and failures of humanitarian intervention um, from which he will derive recommendations uh, for future implementation uh, of the responsibility to protect. The project draws on 15 years of experience, uh, field interviews with rebels, government officials, and interveners in the deadly conflicts of Bosnia, Kosovo, Rwanda, Darfur, Liberia, and of course, Libya. And I'm told that this is a project that will ultimately result in a book. Uh, Alan raised a number of these questions relating to Libya in an important article in the Journal of International Security last summer entitled The Model Humanitarian Intervention, question mark, reassessing NATO's Libya campaign. That uh, article was also adapted for a chapter uh, in a book on the, on the responsibility to protect. A few other quick notes about Alan. He uh, is Associate Professor of Public Affairs at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs at Texas University of Texas, Austin. He teaches his courses in global uh, policy and also uh, a Pentagon-funded project on constitutional design and conflict management in Africa. He's also the co-director, the coordinator, excuse me, of the Nuclear Proliferation Prevention Project, NPPP.org. He also spent some time in Washington before his academic career. Or prior, uh, he worked for then U.S. Congressman Charles Schumer, House Speaker Thomas Foley, and he was Chief of Staff for Congressman James Scheuer. Dr. Koopman holds an A.B. in Physical Sciences from Harvard, a Master's from SICE and a doctorate in political science from MIT. Our second speaker today is Chris Chivas. He's a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation and adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins SICE. 
His research interests include European and Eurasian security, NATO, military interventions, and nation building, all of which is obviously directly relevant today. He is the author of Toppling Gaddafi, Libya and Limits of Liberal Intervention, which is for sale outside. Uh, and a new study just released by Rand, uh, co-authored with Jeffrey Martini, entitled Libya After Gaddafi, Lessons and Implications for the Future. Again, the, art, the paper is available on Rand's website. Uh, I just got it in my mail, email yesterday. Uh, Dr. Chivas has served in the Office of Secretary of Defense for Policy. He worked on Eurasian security issues and NATO-Russian cooperation. He's held research positions at the French Institute for International Relations in Paris and the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. And he taught graduate courses at Johns Hopkins, NYU, uh, and Sciences Po in Paris. He received his PhD from Johns Hopkins Seiss. Our third and final speaker today is my colleague Ben Friedman, a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies here at Cato. His areas of expertise include counterterrorism, homeland security, and defense politics. He's the author of dozens of articles and uh, op-eds, journal articles, and the co-editor of two books, including with me and Jim Harper, Terrorizing Ourselves, Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It, Fix it which was published in 2010. He's a graduate of Dartmouth College and a Ph.D. candidate in political science and an affiliate of the Security Studies Program at MIT. So with that, let me introduce Alan. Take it away. Right there. Well, thanks very much, uh, Chris, for that kind introduction, and thanks to all of you uh, for coming today. The uh, topic today is, did the military intervention in Libya succeed? So what is success? Um, I actually read Chris's uh, book, and I'm not sure that it ever formally defined what success is, yet it concluded that the Libya intervention was a success, and so I assume he'll be telling us today what he meant precisely by that. For me, when I think of success uh, in a military campaign, I turn for guidance to Clausewitz, the most famous theorist of the use of military force in history, and his most famous dictum, which is that war is the continuation of politics by other means. Now, most people have heard that, maybe even can recite it, but not that many people think about what it actually means. And what it means is that when you conduct a war, Success is determined not by the military achievements, but by the political achievements. That is success. So specifically in this uh, use of force, in this military campaign against Libya, what was the political objective that would help us decide if there was success or not? Well, fortunately, President Obama told us what the political objectives were. And he told us uh, barely a week into the intervention in a speech appropriately at the National Defense University. And what he said is that the goals were, political goals were one, to protect civilians, two, to stop the killing, three, to facilitate a transition to a legitimate government that is responsive to the Libyan people, Fourth, avert strains on the peaceful yet fragile transition in neighboring states, that is the 
nascent Arab Spring. And lastly, to prevent repressive leaders in other states from concluding that violence is the best strategy to cling to power. So success would be achieving these political objectives, or at least making progress towards these political objectives at a cost that is worthwhile. Okay, so that's, that would be what success is. Now the question is, did we achieve success? And the way to, do, to assess that is to compare what actually happened with intervention to what would have happened without intervention. Then we can see what the net impact of intervention was. So first, well, what would have happened without intervention? It's impossible to know for sure. This is what we call a counterfactual, but there's good ways of assessing it. And, and what we have to do is look at what was happening uh, immediately prior to intervention and what likely would have occurred without the intervention. So we have to go into the uh, beginnings of this conflict and, and how it transpired prior to NATO intervention. So what was happening in Libya? One thing that was not happening in Libya is that there were no massacres of nonviolent civilian protesters. I'm sure you've all heard there were, but in fact, there were not. And if you want documentation of that, just read my uh, article published in International Security last, last year. So what was happening? Well, there was a violent uprising in Libya. It was violent from the very first day. It was in eastern Libya, a, a traditional opposition area to Gaddafi's rule. Gaddafi initially responded with non-lethal force, but very, very quickly, both sides escalated to lethal force within days. The rebels then made fairly rapid progress. So this was the uprising in the east in those middle days of February. And within about two weeks, the rebels had moved westward and conquered the eastern half, the coast of Libya. And then there had been uprisings afterwards in the west of Libya. And we can see that red area is the area that was within two weeks controlled by the rebels, basically half the country. But Gaddafi then regrouped very, very quickly, and within the next two weeks, had um, pushed the rebels back almost to where they were. Now, how did he do this? Was he using indiscriminate force against the Libyan people? The answer is simply no. And the best evidence comes from uh, the city that had the most intense fighting, which is Misrata, which you can see up there just east of Tripoli. According to Human Rights Watch, which is no defender of Gaddafi, Human Rights Watch says that in Misrata, what percentage of the casualties were women and children? 3%. 3%. Now, if Gaddafi had been targeting the people indiscriminately, the percentage of women and children that were uh, casualties would have been over 50%. But instead, it's, a mere, it's 3% which shows that Gaddafi's forces were being extremely careful to target only militants, not the civilian population. As I said, Gaddafi's forces very, very quickly pushed back the rebels so that they were basically where they had started a month prior. And they were an abject retreat to the east. They had been basically defeated in the west, and they were on the verge of defeat in Misrata. And at this point, Gaddafi's son said, quote, unquote, Everything will be over in 48 hours. And I think that is about right. 
That is about right. Certainly, by the end of March, this war would have been over. How many people would have died? Well, at that point, there were about 1,000 dead, and that includes government forces, rebels, and civilians. So if the war had gone on for a few more days, maybe about uh, another 100 would have died. Now, what about the supposed bloodbath that was going to happen without intervention? You probably have heard that there was going to be a bloodbath in Benghazi. Um, well, should we believe that there was going to be a bloodbath in Benghazi? People say, well, after the rebels conquered the town, and if Gaddafi had taken it back, he would have just slaughtered people. Well, the fact is, there were other towns that the rebels had conquered and that Gaddafi had taken back. Did he slaughter people there? No. So there were at least four cities that he had reconquered. Zawiya and Zuwara in the west of Libya, Ajdabia in the east of Libya, and Misrata in the center of Libya, which, wasn't, which had basically 90% retaken. In none of those towns was there a bloodbath. So if he had taken one more city, would he have committed a bloodbath there? It's possible, but there is no reason to believe that that's true. So what would have happened overall without intervention? Uh, I conclude that the war would have ended in late March. It would have been a six-week war. There would have been 1,100 deaths. That's without intervention. What about with intervention? Well, what happened with intervention is that the rebels, rather than fleeing eastward and taking refuge in Egypt, they stood their ground, NATO bombed Gaddafi's forces, and then the rebels moved back west. Then they got stalled, then there was a little fighting in the center of the country, then they regrouped, and eventually they marched all the way to Tripoli. In August, they took the capital Tripoli. In October, they found Gaddafi and killed him. And the war ended. At least the, the, the major combat operations of the war ended. After eight months, so this is the outcome without intervention. This is the outcome with intervention. Rather than lasting six weeks, the war lasted 36 weeks. Rather than having 1,100 dead, there were in the range of 8,000 to 11,000 dead. 8,000 is a US government estimate. 11,500 is a Libyan government estimate. What else happened? Were there other positive or negative consequences of the war? Well, there were a lot of negative consequences. So first of all, there was reprisal killing by the rebels. There was ethnic cleansing of uh, ethnic Africans, about 30 to 40,000 of them. Had Gaddafi ever done that? No, Gaddafi had never done that in his country. Uh, Human Rights Watch says these uh, activities by the rebels we were supporting constituted, quote unquote, crimes against humanity. What else happened in Libya? Well, we have pervasive insecurity now large-scale killing, militia control of the country, the government's not in control, uh, Benghazi is a disaster, including the tragic killing of Amb Ambassador Chris Stevens. We have the flourishing of radical Islam. So Gaddafi was our ally against al-Qaeda types. In his absence, in his demise, in the wake of his demise, al-Qaeda types are flourishing uh, in eastern Libya. We also have secessionism in eastern Libya. This is destroying the oil economy. So that today in Libya, they are producing one-sixth as much oil as they were when Gaddafi was in power. One-sixth. The economy is devastated. The government is not functioning. First, they kidnapped the prime minister. Then the prime minister had to flee the country. Uh, 
Another seemingly obscure consequence is very, very important, is that this intervention in Libya caused uh, the destruction of the best democracy in North Africa, okay? Mali. Mali was this one sterling example of democracy in North Africa. What happened? We overthrew Gaddafi. Some of his forces fled back to their home in Mali. They uh, allied with al-Qaeda. They overthrew the government. And what we had, according to the U.S. Senate, was the largest safe haven in the world for al-Qaeda established in North Mali. In addition, we had pro proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. I'm sorry, proliferation of, of weapons, including um, man-portable uh, surface-to-air missiles, uh, which can be used to bring down uh, civilian aircraft and therefore, in a sense, are a weapon of mass destruction. Two more things. Uh, uh, Syria, was Syria deterred? Was Assad deterred from using force against civilians by uh, this intervention in Libya? It sure doesn't look like it. In fact, violence in Syria escalated in the wake of uh, NATO intervention in Libya. What about <coughs> Egypt? Well, there, the military came in and overthrew the, uh, the nascent uh, democratic flourishing uh, of the Arab Spring. So, is this success? By Obama's own objectives, did it protect civilians? No. It increased the death toll by about eightfold. Did it stop the killing? No. It uh, lengthened the war by about six times. Did it facilitate a transition to a legitimate government responsive to the Libyan people? There's no legitimate government, and it's not responsive to the Libyan people. Did it avert strains on the peacefully yet fragile transitions in neighboring states? Uh, no. Uh, it, in fact, uh, led to uh, the demise of the best democracy in North Africa? Did it prevent repressive leaders concluding that violence is the best strategy to cling to power? No. Assad went ahead and did what he was going to do, and the rulers in the military in Egypt decided to overthrow the democratically uh, elected government. So it's, it's, in a sense, maybe too soon to tell. This is only three years after the fact. But uh, as of now, Karl von Clausewitz would have to conclude that the NATO intervention in Libya was an abysmal failure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> Chris? You're up. Yep. Thanks. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Alan. I think you really laid down uh, a lot of the uh, a, a lot of the main points that we need to be talking about here. Um, I should say I'm 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 delighted to be here at Cato uh, because, well, for two reasons. One is that I knew this was going to be a, a lively debate, uh, just you know, cognizant of the differences that we have on this issue. And the other is that uh, I don't know how many of you are aware, but th this is my second book. Um, and my first book was actually somewhat different in nature. It was a book about 20th century uh, European neoliberalism. Uh, my first book looked at the thinking of a French economist named Jacques Rueff who was actually a, a close friend of Hayek, whose auditorium we're sitting in here. Um, and I think that uh, in, in writing about Rueff, I learned a lot about Hayek, uh, a lot about Milton Friedman, uh, and a lot, of, a lot about a lot of other uh, great 20th century neoliberals. I myself consider myself to be actually a, a classical liberal. Uh, I wrote the book about Rueff because I was interested in him. Uh, my favorite philosopher is probably John Stuart Mill. Um, but this is the perspective that I've come at this study 
of military intervention in Libya from. I'm trying to think about how we can square the circle between protecting our freedoms, those that Hayek and others uh, believed in uh, abroad, uh, and also being sure that in doing so, we don't undermine uh, the freedoms that we appreciate uh, and, and cherish here at home. Um, and that was the framework in which I, I decided to write uh, this book at the, at the outset. Um, I, was, I was very lucky uh, in writing uh, Toppling Qaddafi because I was working in the Pentagon at the time that the intervention took place. I wasn't actually working on uh, Libya. I was working uh, more broadly on NATO and its relationship with Russia. Um, and I think that if I had been working on Libya, I probably would not have been allowed to write the book because I was privileged to a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of information that other people uh, were not able to see. But I was sitting right next to the people who were actually actively working on this. Um, and I'll say that at the start, uh, I was really quite skeptical uh, about whether or not this was the right decision. When I heard that we had decided uh, you know, to, to go after Libya, uh, Libya's air defense systems, the reports of the, uh, the guided missiles uh, slamming down on, on, on uh, the, the integrated air defense system along the northern part uh, of Libya's coast, um, I was a little bit worried because working in the Pentagon was very, very clear that the last thing that the United States needed was another war. We were so weighed down so heavily by uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. There was a huge amount of resistance uh, that I think was voiced uh, most forcefully by the Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, who, if you've read his book, and you didn't need to read his book, <laughs> to know that he had you know, some pretty serious reservations about this operation. So I started off as a skeptic about, uh, about what it, uh, whether or not it was a good idea. But in the course of researching it, uh, talking to people, uh, as I said, I was very lucky to have the opportunity to talk to a lot of high-level officials in the White House, at the State Department, and of course uh, in the Defense Department. Um, also to talk to a lot of our allies uh, about how they saw the operation and what they were trying to achieve. And then of course, as I'm sure Alan has, go to Libya itself and talk to the Libyans about how they see it. Um, I think this is, uh, you know, this is, this is uh, something that over the course of time sort of changed my perspective to it. And I went from being a skeptic to being a a moderate uh, proponent of the wisdom of the intervention. I'm by no means someone who would argue that we did everything right, and I don't think anyone who is rational could argue that the outcome is what we might all have hoped for. But my argument, and, and this is, you know, Alan has asked for a definition of what success is, is that things in Libya are generally better off than they would have been if we had not acted when we did. And we need to talk about that a little bit because I think Alan and I have some different ideas about what actually would have happened uh, if the United States had not acted. But there's a bigger picture to it than just the question of whether or not uh, things in Libya are better. There's also a question about whether or not it served our broader national interests, the broader interests of the United States, both in its relationship uh, with our European allies and also in its relationship with other parts of the world. And then finally, there's a question about whether or not the Libya intervention uh, actually points towards, so I think as, as Chris was suggesting, whether or not there are lessons that we can learn from it when we go and confront this challenge of failed states and crises in the future and try and think about how we can use the, the awesome military power that our country has in ways that are both acceptable to our public and also uh, financially and militarily feasible. Because we know that the the, the, the resources that we have for this kind of a, an intervention are, are declining. Public support is going down. 
But that doesn't change the fact that the international security environment is going to continue to demand some kind of international response to crises. So for me, the main challenge that we have as analysts of international, international affairs, and particularly of international security, is to try and figure out how we can square that circle between diminishing resources on the one hand uh, and continued demand uh, from failed and failing states on the other. Now, let me just t tell you a little bit about what, what's in the book. I mean, the book goes through a lot of the sort of uh, myths and controversies uh, you know, that, that, that came up at the time. And some of them, I you know some of the things that were out there in public, <clears throat> I confirmed. Others of them, uh, I, I disconfirm. And, and, and in many cases, uh, what I think my book does is actually try to nuance, to some degree, uh, the discussions that were out there. So if you take, for example, one of the big controversies at the time, which revolved around the decision to intervene itself, there was a lot of speculation that uh, the United States decided to intervene because there was some cabal of female hawks uh, who were out there who had sort of got their claws into the into the president and convinced him uh, that he he absolutely needed to send in uh, send in the U.S. military. Um, you know, I, I did a, a, a pretty far ranging set of interviews for this, and that really is not an accurate. Uh, not an accurate uh, description of how the decision-making at the highest levels of our government went down. It's not to say that there weren't women who obviously had a, an important role, and they are indeed the ones who, are, you know, who were mentioned in the newspapers, um, but there were a lot of other factors uh, that were involved as well. And one of the things that I think is most frequently forgotten or that was left out of a lot of the discussions uh, in the newspapers uh, is the fact that the president himself actually played a very significant role uh, in this decision and was actually much more proactive in thinking about it than I think a lot of people recognized uh, at the time. Um, the second sort of big uh, controversy that I talk about uh, in Toppling Gaddafi is, the, is over whether or not to use NATO, uh, our, you know, our, our great transatlantic alliance, as a means of pursuing this intervention. Because there, was, there, was a, there were many countries, and in particular France, which as you recall, was one of the countries that was pushing hardest uh, for the intervention that, that had wanted this to take place in a coalition of the willing format, sort of like uh, the Iraq War. Um, the United States was adamantly opposed to this. And even as uh, our warplanes were hitting targets in Libya during that first week of operations, there was a huge sort of uh, 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 debate going on in, in Brussels and also in, in our capitals over whether or not we ought to use NATO. So I talk about how that debate played out, you know, who was in what camp and what their reasons were. And I think uh, certainly in writing it myself, I gained some insights into the realities of how uh, the, the, the NATO alliance actually works. The third controversy um, was over uh, the approach that the United States took to the alliance that, that came to be called leading from behind. I'm sure all of you remember uh, this article in The New Yorker that came out in which uh, a, a senior uh, US official was cited as calling the approach that the United States had taken leading from behind. Um, this was pretty roundly criticized and I think regretted deeply uh, by many, many members of the administration. Um, but I have, to, I have to say that it's a little bit of a surprise because the way that I read the polls is that both on the Republican side and on the Democrat side, uh, there was pretty strong support for the United States actually taking a backseat in this intervention. Um, but in any event, I, I discuss in the book how uh, what the intellectual origins of that approach were uh, and what the rationale within the administration for it was and what the ultimate uh, results, uh, if we look back on it uh, three years later, uh, have been. Um, 
the the next uh, I think important there there are a couple of there are a couple of myths then I think that I dispel. One of them is that there was no effort to negotiate a peace. I mean, you hear this frequently in the press, and I'm not sure what it comes from. There were no fewer than five international efforts on the ground through June and July to actually come to some kind of a negotiated settlement. I mean, th some of these were more public than others, but I discussed them, I, I discussed them in the book. I mean, we certainly sent senior U.S. officials uh, to meet with Qaddafi officials uh, in, uh, in Tunis uh, as late as mid-July to try and come to some kind of a negotiated settlement. Those efforts ultimately failed, and I think there are lessons that we can learn from that, and we could have done a better job. There's no question about it. But I talk about these efforts and how they were important in the overall strategy uh, that, that we took to this intervention. Finally, there's the question of uh, whether or not the limited approach that the United States and NATO adopted, which involved a very low number of airstrikes, uh, the use of a very limited number of aircraft, um, and obviously uh, no ground forces, uh, was the right approach. Because we had many, many people, as you recall, who were arguing that what the United States needed to do was to send in a heavier force uh, to send in, you know, A-10 Warthogs, to send in all kinds of uh, other attack aircraft, to use more drones, uh, and, uh, and basically, you know, if necessary, to send in the Marines, who were actually in a mew off the coast of, off the coast of, uh, off the coast of Libya throughout most of the operation. Uh, so I deal with, uh, I deal with the reasons, that what the internal debate over that strategy was, and of course, what the ultimate outcomes, uh, outcomes were. So now, let me just say, I'm not someone who thinks that this is, uh, this is a smashing success. But it's true that on, on balance, I am uh, fairly positive about it. Um, and I think we can talk about this to some degree in the discussion. Um, I'm, I'm positive about it for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it was, a, it was a good example of how the United States can use NATO effectively. Um, one of the consequences of this has been that European, our European allies, who for many, many years we've been trying to get to carry more of the, wa the water in our common defense have re-examined the extent to which they rely on the United States for, for military support. You see this most strikingly in the case of France, but you've also seen it in the case of several other countries. So I think that in the extent to which the Libya intervention has encouraged our allies to spend more on defense so that we can, we can in effect, spend less or spend on other things that may be greater priorities to us, I think that is, that is for me, a success. I think it was a win for NATO, and as a supporter of NATO, uh, I, also, uh, I also therefore uh, look on that aspect of it positively. Um, I think that it showed a new kind of flexibility within the alliance. Uh, that is one that's going to be necessary if NATO, which is of course the transatlantic link, one of the key parts uh, of the transatlantic link that binds the United States and, our, and the European democracies together, um, as, as important. I think that it's... it's uh, that if, this, if NATO is going to succeed in the future, it needs to continue to be flexible. And I think that NATO showed flexibility in this case. Um, we can, I think we can, we can discuss in greater detail the bigger picture of whether or not uh, it was a success when you look at what would have happened in Libya. And I'll just say that the, you know, the, the, the fairly uh, intricate uh, and, and articulate argument uh, that, uh, that Alan just gave is, is, is good. I mean, it, it's detailed. Um, we, and again, we could go into the details in the discussion, but I mean, my basic view is that if we had not acted in Libya, Libya would not look like Libya in 2010. It would look a lot like Syria. And I think that Syria basically demonstrates that that's the case. We have two cases. One case where there was a revolt against a totalitarian dictatorship in which the United States took action. 
And the outcome is far from perfect, and this is Libya, but it certainly is not a restoration. It, it certainly is better off. The Libyans are certainly better off than the Syrians, which is the case where we have not taken any action. Um, so I think that if you want to think about it uh, from that perspective, that's clear. If we want to talk about what happened in Benghazi, um, you know, uh, I'll just say that Gaddafi himself had said that he was going to slaughter these people. We had very good intelligence that that was his intention. Uh, and he was dri unlike the other cities that Alan mentions, uh, he was driving his, his most sophisticated military forces and tanks toward the city. Um, so it's true, we could have waited to see what he was actually going to do. Um, that's one way of thinking about it. That's what we did in Bosnia, uh, where over 100,000 people were killed. Um, or we acted. And in this case, we acted, and I think that was the right decision. The question of whether or not there would, be, there would have been uh, more regional stability. I was actually just in Mali myself. And I'll tell you, the Mal Malians do not blame the uh, NATO intervention in Libya for their problems. I mean, the Touareg issue in northern Mali is something that goes back many decades, back to the 1960s. There have been multiple revolts of the Touaregs, uh, most recently in, in 2007, 2008. Um, so while I think that to a certain degree, this, the war that took place in Libya contributed to the collapse of Mali and to the broader regional, uh, the broader regional instability that unquestionably exists today, to pin that on NATO, I think, is, is really a stretch of the, uh, of the imagination. But most of all, I think you know, the United States and its allies achieved our, our broader political objectives here, which was to show support for uh, the democratic movements that were rising up across the Middle East. I mean, as many of these movements, as we know, have not turned out to be as democratic as, as we initially thought. That's true, and I think that that's something that, that we should probably talk about. But the reality is we, we, we tend to forget that Qaddafi was really one of the world's most brutal dictators. Um, and I don't think that's something that we can simply just, just cast aside. There was a revolt against uh, one of the most repressive regimes on earth here. The United States helped its allies to help rebels to overthrow that regime. And that's something that I think you know, we, have to, we have to acknowledge. Uh, and ultimately, despite the fact that the situation in Libya today is not a, a great shining democracy, I still think that's something that indicates that this was, after all, even three years later, and despite its problems, a success. So thanks. Thank you, Chris. <clears throat> I dislike anniversaries, especially the sort of semi-official moments of reflection that mark some national tragedy or war that commenced three or five years ago where pundits pause some of the debates that they're having to offer package lessons about uh, whatever's being memorialized, which they gleaned uh, back when they were paying attention to it. But it, it's sort of like history by hallmark. Uh, but uh, I do appreciate uh, the opportunity uh, that these occasions give us to uh, republish old writing under new headings and, and uh, more seriously uh, to evaluate old policy choices, uh, especially wars like the one in Libya where the heads of the intervening states all sort of declared victory on page one and in the evening news and then things uh, unravel on page 12 and on Al Jazeera Arabic. Uh, that's why uh, we put together uh, this event and why uh, I'm grateful to uh, you all for uh, listening and to uh, both Chris's and Alan uh, for being here. I, uh, what I want to do here is just evaluate in, in more detail the goals uh, for the intervention that US leaders gave, which Alan already mentioned, but focusing not 
on the humanitarian aspect, uh, as Alan did, but on uh, the other non-humanitarian uh, goals. I, I think really there were, were two, to repeat. One was to make Libya a liberal democracy. The other one was the argument that giving support to the Libyan rebels would deter other rulers in the region from cracking down on protest or revolutionary uh, movements there. So I want to evaluate those arguments. But before I, I dive into that, I want to make a point about political rhetoric. Uh, democracy, I think we forget sometimes, requires salesmanship. And that's especially true when we're talking about US foreign policy. As a rich, technologically adept country surrounded by docile neighbors and water, uh, that is an incredibly safe state by historical standards. Uh, our wars are usually remotely linked, linked only in a, in a sort of esoteric way to our actual security and domestic well-being. We only fight wars of choice in the United States. Uh, so the leaders advocating them labor to convince us that they are wise. And the actual reason that a U.S. leader wants a war rarely exhausts the reasons that he or she gives in public in advocating for it. In the case of Libya, uh, the limited, uh, admittedly limited historical records suggest that the winning argument, uh, at least in the United States, that got President Obama to support the war was the humanitarian argument. And the other arguments, the ones I'm focusing on, were at best secondary, maybe just PR. Uh, but whether or not those offering those arguments actually found them persuasive, uh, certainly some people listening did. So I think we, we as analysts need to take them seriously. And I should say that while I'm focusing here on what US leaders said, uh, you can find similar quotes from British and French leaders and probably from the heads of most of the 19 states uh, that ultimately contributed uh, to the war effort, though probably not cutters. Um, before I, I get into that, the one point uh, on the humanitarian side of things that Alan Cooperman didn't make, uh, which came up uh, in Chris's remarks, uh, I don't think we ought to put a lot of stock in what uh, Gaddafi said in his rather crazed and incredibly long-winded ramblings. Uh, that said, uh, if you look at least at the translation, I don't speak Arabic, but if you look at the translations of uh, the speeches he gave when he said he was going to slaughter rats and so forth in Benghazi or wherever, he was, I think, talking about rebels, people who took up arms. And uh, if there's a quote that he gave that contradicts that, uh, evaluation, I'd, I'd, uh, it, it may exist. It might have been recorded by the US government, but I haven't seen it. Um, so anyway, uh, one goal was to make Libya a democracy. Uh, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who was a key supporter of war as ever, uh, made uh, this point about democracy repeatedly. President Obama said on uh, March 28th, 2011, 2011, quote, we must stand alongside those who believe this in the same core principles that have guided us through many storms. Our opposition to violence directed at one's own people, our support for a set of universal rights, including the freedom for people to express themselves and choose their leaders, our support for governments that are ultimately responsive to the aspirations of the people, unquote. A couple notable things about that remark. First, the president's presenting a false dichotomy where we either fight a war for people who aspire to freedom uh, a proposition that requires a lot of war, or uh, we ignore those people entirely. Second, uh, the president is talking not just about democracy, meaning electing leaders, but about liberalism, which is a broader set of values involving individual rights and norms of cooperation. And I think that's sensible uh, to the extent that democracy without liberalism isn't worth much, but it's also overly uh, ambitious. 
Now, we could argue about whether the fact that Libya has elected a parliament that has no power uh, makes it a democratic state. But I think what's more important is that it remains uh, illiberal, as we heard. Uh, to add to what uh, Alan said, uh, a UN report from last fall uh, says that something like 8,000 people remain under arbitrary detention. Uh, reports of torture are widespread. Political assassinations, as the New York Times recently reported, remain rampant, especially in the East. And there, uh, even the moderate non-Islamist uh, militias uh, are supporting what they call federalism and what seems to be shading towards outright separatism. So it's not a civil war, and that's good news. It's not a war of all against all, but it's not close to being a, a liberal state. And while those particular troubles in Libya shouldn't be uh, seen as an inevitable result of Gaddafi's fall, uh, the general story shouldn't surprise anyone. Countries historically become liberal democracies. There's all sorts of scholarship about this. After they've developed a functional state that enforces laws and uh, they agree on nationhood within the borders and agree to live by some governing rules. And as uh, Dirk Vanderwall, who's a leading expert on Libya, argued long ago, oil wealth let Libya grow into a state that spends money rather than extracting it uh, from the private economy via taxes. That retarded uh, the private sector by encouraging rent-seeking, where people, instead of innovating, uh, try to get a handout. And it retarded the public sector, because rather than build an administration to tax wealth and legitimize its collection uh, via a social contract, which is the path most Western democracies took uh, to becoming the liberal states they are, Libya's rulers could simply tap oil revenue to buy off elites and fund the military. Uh, so the basis for state unity in Libya is weak, making cohesion, let alone uh, liberal democracy, I think, uh, a long shot, at least for a considerable while. Um, the second major justification for uh, U.S. and allied intervention, uh, to repeat, was that by fighting in Libya, we would show other Middle Eastern despots that the international community, community wouldn't allow them to repress protest movements or arm results. So we'd facilitate this revolutionary Arab Spring. Uh, and here's Obama on May 19th. Uh, 2011, quote, had we not acted along with our NATO allies and regional coalition partners, thousands would have been killed. The message would have been clear, keep power by killing as many people as it takes, unquote. And here's then Senator, now Secretary of State John Kerry on March 26th of that year, quote, by responding and giving the, the uh, popular uprising a chance to take power, the U.S. and other allies sent a message of solidarity with the aspirations of people everywhere that will be remembered for generations rather than be forced to debate who lost Libya. The free world is poised to say, remember Tripoli every time demagogues question our motives. Um, and this is a credibility argument, a reverse domino theory where our reputation or the international community's reputation for resolve, instead of stopping communism spreads as, as Vietnam was supposed to, uh, unleashes revolutions that we hope will be liberal. Um, because credibility arguments attach peripheral concerns to more important ones, they're always used to justify wars where our interests are few. Besides Vietnam, examples include uh, the Balkan Wars, uh, the 90s, where um, some advocates uh, said we had to bomb uh, to protect NATO's reputation for resolve. And uh, more recently, uh, examples include Iraq and Afghanistan, where someone was always saying we couldn't leave because that would embolden enemies elsewhere. These sorts of credibility or domino arguments have two 
fatal flaws, I think. First, there's little evidence that the reputation of outside states for carrying out threats much matters to other leaders, especially those that are struggling to stay in power. Political scientists are nearly unanimous uh, in finding that the believability of state threats to go to war hardly depends on the outcome of their threats in other times and places. When leaders, uh, on the other side of this, when leaders are considering whether or not they should do something uh, despite some outside state's threats saying don't do it, uh, they focus mostly on the balance of power with that state and uh, on its interests there, uh, rather than looking at its history of carrying out past threats. Iran's leaders, for example, are unlikely to think that the UN's enforcement of a no-fly zone in Libya says much about uh, the UN's willingness to prevent them from killing protesters, just as Soviet leaders didn't, didn't measure American commitment to defend Germany by the war we fought in Vietnam. Second reason credibility arguments fail. Uh, even if credibility travels in this way, as the administration claims, it might backfire. We might give false hope encouraging rebellions that we aren't uh, prepared to defend, as we arguably did after the first Gulf War, and we encouraged an uprising and then watched it get crushed. And uh, our credibility, to the extent it exists, might encourage leaders like Assad to nip unrest in the bud, to heighten repression before protests morph into revolts that outside interveners can support. And the leader winds up, if he's lucky, in The Hague, or if he's unlucky, uh, being murdered on YouTube, like Gaddafi. Um, also, I think the sort of minimal cost war we fought in Libya isn't likely to impress too many enemies, at least those that can impose more costs uh, than Gaddafi. So whether or not you think revolutionary movements in the Middle East are a good thing, uh, it seems unlikely that our war in Libya much affected them. But to the extent it did, it probably had a negative effect. Our intervention probably had a negative effect. Uh, and so to finish, at the, at the risk of hypocrisy, let me draw a few of my own uh, pithy lessons from our experience in Libya. Number one, uh, as political scientist Richard Betts writes, impartial intervention remains a delusion. Uh, the pretension that we can intervene uh, only to help civilians in Libya uh, was largely a result of alliance politics, which was manifest in the UN Security Council authorizing war, which authorized it under international law only as a way to defend civilians. And of course, doing that put us on the side uh, of the rebels. Now, that fiction that we're disinterested referees rather than participants on a side uh, confuses debate. It, it, I think, creates some policy problems we could talk about. But more importantly, it shrouds what's really happening. So I think advocates of the responsibility to protect ought to at least admit that they're advocates also of various secessionists and rebels and that they're often state breakers. Um, I don't think we should be blind to that when we look at these interventions. Lesson number two, uh, Thucydides was uh, right, remains right. The strong do what they will and the weak endure what they must. Uh, Libya was a target partly because its leader was so noxious, but also because it was weak enough that we could help overthrow its government at minimal cost. Power allowed the United States and its allies to do this, to overthrow or help overthrow Gaddafi uh, at a direct cost of only about a billion dollars, about four days of the war in Afghanistan, and uh, no US dead during the war. Um, but the third lesson is you get what you pay for. Um, it's actually hard to remember a state making such a show of its disinterest in winning a war uh, compared to the US and Libya. We explicitly ruled out ground forces. We passed the baton to 
Europeans uh, as quickly as we could. We avoided uh, various military targets for fear we'd kill too many people. We avoided sending men and money uh, for post-war rebuilding. And then we mostly ignored Libya as the deterioration of conditions there undermined the stated war goals we had. So it's not surprising that such minimal investment yields such minimal returns. States indulge, states indulge moral values when the cost of doing so is low, but actually making countries into something that serves those values tends to be very expensive, if it's at all possible. Um, and so I think if we're not willing to pay any human and financial costs in a war, we should reconsider whether or not we should have it. Uh, fourth, democracy deals poorly with low-cost wars. Uh, wars like Libya become this sort of why not luxury purchase, sort of like buying a song on iTunes for 99 cents. You do it because, without thinking very much because it's so cheap. Uh, because the Libyan war's consequences were so remote for most Americans, the public here never developed concrete preferences about it, certainly not salient ones that Congress had to worry about the next time they were up for re-election. So the administration uh, could label the war a kinetic military action to evade the war powers resolution and dodge congressional authorization, while Congress barely objected, uh, barely debated, did little oversight on anything in Libya besides Benghazi, didn't hold a real authorization vote, didn't even appropriate funds. The money uh, came from transfers within the Pentagon. And I think it's a, it's a shame that the congressmen who are holding up Benghazi as a great national scandal barely examined its context, which is this war and this political project uh, in Libya, which most of them have either uh, supported or ignored in the political chaos uh, that came uh, in Libya as a result of the war. So in the absence of governmental debate, when costs are low, uh, the administration's claims went by without expert scrutiny in the media. So checks and balances on executive power fail without discernible, concentrated costs in the electorate. And uh, I think, unfortunately, these sorts of wars are likely to continue because given the combination of the aversion that the Iraq and Afghanistan wars have created to war in the public, and a foreign policy elite still convinced that the world needs their guidance, their protection, and uh, their authorized drone strikes, uh, low-cost interventions are likely to continue, though the public's backlash against the uh, attempt to fire cruise missiles at Syria, I think, is a hopeful sign, at least, that even quite limited wars have gotten harder to start. Uh, fifth lesson, uh, our humanitarian and revolutionary impulses conflict. We in this country, I think, too easily ignore Cooperman's point that taking sides in a civil war or even taking neither side involves bad, even tragic choices among our values. Autocratic rulers are generally better for human life than the chaos that comes after their fall. That's not always true. Stalin would be an exception maybe, but it's often true. Um, one generally has to choose between aiding revolutions and minimizing human suffering. Uh, and that leads to my final point, which is that sovereignty and political order are not goods we should lightly dismiss. As inheritors of uh, long, stable, liberal institutions, we're prone, I think, to see illiberal government as inimical to all uh, the virtues we see in government, including humanitarianism. We forget, I think, that there are politics besides despotism and liberalism. Uh, we tend to think of police states as strong, but uh, states rely on coercion uh, for cohesion, largely because they lack the ideological and organizational glue that we take for granted. And it's those sorts of states, those coercive police states, that are prone to collapse when their leaders fall. 
So those misperceptions, I think, contribute to our habit of waving aside sovereignty to overthrow odious governments under an assumption that things can hardly be worse, uh, even though the vast majority of human history is shades of anarchy, uh, which is indeed far worse by most measures of well-being that we have. Thanks. <clears throat> Thank you, Ben. Um, thank you, Chris and Alan. Um, we now have time for questions. Um, please wait for the microphone. There are two microphones in the audience, uh, especially for those uh, watching online. You probably can hear your fellow uh, attendees, but for those watching online uh, or after, uh, the microphones are essential. Uh, please identify yourself and your affiliation if you have one. Uh, one last thing, the Jeopardy rule applies here at Cato. Please phrase your question in the form of a question. Uh, no speeches, please. And I have down here, right there. Good afternoon. My question to Mr. Friedman is, um, what is your conclusion about the near future with the conditions of different um, potential wars that are in various uh, areas that we're familiar with because of the confusion in the way the statements that we're trying to make. And I think it's very difficult for any president now or future to make a statement or it, 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 to get the impression that we're, we're together about whether or not we should attack a country unless they attack us first. Uh, I hope this is responsive. The politics certainly are that it's hard to start a high-cost war in the United States right now. We have what our colleague uh, John Mueller calls a uh, Iraq syndrome. You could call it the Iraq-Afghanistan syndrome, uh, which is increasingly evident in public opinion uh, polling and certainly uh, showed up uh, last fall, when, as I mentioned, when we were looking to send cruise missiles uh, into Syria. But that hasn't stopped uh, this administration from uh, continuing to fire uh, drone powered missiles at uh, people in various countries. So uh, I think, as I said, uh, at least for a while, we'll have uh, fewer wars, uh, at least big ones, but we might have this continued kind of low-level quasi-wars uh, going on because that's uh, what you can get away with. And as I say, there's still great desire for that uh, in the uh, in the this administration and any uh, Republican administration, I could imagine, uh, coming to power. I disagree a little bit uh, with uh, Chris in that uh, I don't think the international system uh, really demands U.S. intervention. I think U.S. domestic politics in some way generate self-created demands to get involved in these things sometimes. Uh, over here, and then I'll get, and then you next, sir. Hi, good morning. My name is Audrey. I'm a master's student at uh, Georgetown University School of Security Studies. Um, and this question is directed towards uh, Dr. Cooperman. Um, I was looking at the numbers that you had posted on the screen between... I'm sorry, can uh, you speak up? I can't hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. I was looking at the numbers that you posted on the screen. It was preventing or presenting a rather damning conclusion of our intervention in Libya. You mentioned that um, had we not intervened in Libya, it would have been, we would have possibly, or Libya would have possibly incurred 1,100 casualties, but with intervention, it was approximately 8,000. And I was wondering if you could uh, perhaps hypothesize on some of the causal pathways for why that happened. Uh, were these casualties, you know, rebel-induced? Um, you mentioned ethnic cleansing and reprisals, or were they perhaps um, an escalation of killings by the uh, Qaddafi government? <clears throat> 
Okay, thanks. Thanks very much uh, for your question. Um, it's all of the above, um, but the the fundamental reason is that the war went on for uh, eight months instead of ending in just about a month and a half. And that's there's always going to be a higher death toll if you have a longer war than a shorter war. This war was about to end. Gaddafi had won, and one of the good things. Um, about that, and there may have been some bad things, but one of the good things is that the killing was going to end. Um, specifically, um, where did people die and, and who was killing them? Um, if, you, if you took a look at the, the, the graphic that I put up before, there's an accounting by the, um, uh, the rebels who, who won and, and then established the new government in Libya. And we don't know how reliable it is, but what it suggests is that the killing was rather symmetric, that there was a good chunk of them where Gaddafi's security forces were, were killed, a good chunk of rebels were killed, and a number of civilians were killed as well. Where were they killed? They were killed um, high death tolls in Misrata and in Tripoli. Um, because that's where the fighting between the two armed sides was most intense. Most of the dying in Libya was not massacres of civilians by either of the armed forces. It was mainly the result of a, um, a war between uh, two, two armed sides. So I, I, I will just... Uh, is it okay to comment on uh, sure. some yeah, of the yeah, previous, you know... If one is, is able to make up one's own data, then one can prove any sort of point. And so um, alluding to things like Bosnia and saying, well, 100,000 were killed in Bosnia, so therefore Libya was a, su a success, to me, I really do not see the logic. Um, there was no sort of massacres like that in Libya. There hadn't been prior to NATO intervention. There weren't even after NATO intervention. So why would we think that there would have been massacres of civilians uh, in Libya? Just the uh, point it, is, the, just the point is quite simple. Just to respond directly to that is that in Bosnia, we waited three years to intervene and 100,000 people were killed in the interim and hundreds of thousands more suffered, you know, enormously. Uh, in Libya, we intervened a couple of weeks after the outbreak of the the, uh, the crisis, and as a result, you know, so I'm not saying hundreds of thousands. I I'm, I don't believe that, but I think many thousands of lives. Right, but again, <laughs> lives, again, you're you're, you're me, suggesting that the war in Libya was going to go on for three years, and it's quite clear the war is about to end in Libya. I have These rebels no were in abject retreat. When I showed that map, yeah. they had retreated over half the country in two weeks. They were on the run, and they weren't going forward. They were going backward. And in fact, Gaddafi was encouraging them to, right? When, when you said that he threatened civilians, he explicitly did not. He said, any civilian, I will hold you harmless. Any rebel, if you throw down your arms, I will hold you harmless. The only people I will use force against are rebels who continue to use force against the state. And you know what? I encourage you to flee. And if you want to go to Egypt, you have free passage to Egypt. Right? He had a plan and it was working for two weeks. And the only thing that stopped his plan from working and ending that war in late March was the intervention by NATO, which backfired Horribly. On that, on that point too, Chris, and ben, ben raised this, so much, again, if you look at the timing of it, so much of it hinges on what people expected to occur in Benghazi. The, the first time we were talking about Benghazi, not the second time. Um, what about that? 
do you, do you disagree that the focus of that effort was likely to be on armed rebels and not on civilians who might be harboring them or merely caught in the crossfire? Do you see additional evidence beyond Gaddafi's own statements? How, how do you respond to that? Because do you agree, first of all, that that was a crucial moment uh, in, in terms of motivating uh, the Obama administration to intervene when they did? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that was a, there were multiple factors that led to the intervention and a number of different considerations that went beyond simply, you know, counting how many people were going to be killed, um, which seems to be uh, the discussion that we've been having so far. But um, you're absolutely right that the fact that Gaddafi had said uh, that he was going to hunt people down like rats uh, the fact that we had very good intelligence. Not say he was going to hunt people down. He said he was going to hunt rebels down. Alan, hold up. It's Alan, really that, a big difference. And if you look at Misrata, he was killing rebels, not people. Alan, just a minute. Chris, go ahead. Uh, I mean, we can go back and, and look at the transcripts, and, and, and uh, you know, there are different interpretations of what he might have meant. You're obviously taking a very generous interpretation of... Supported uh, by the evidence in Misrata, right? I mean, I just... <laughs> Hold on. Chris, finish your point, please. I mean, there are a number of details here that we can that we can argue about uh, if we had the time about what actually would have happened in Benghazi. The, the fact is, is that Gaddafi, who was, you know, I don't think anyone disputes one of the world's uh, I most- I disputed. Uh, uh, right. Okay. All right. We, we know that. Up on this. So I, I would like after he I've finishes in a, in a forum in years. Actually, when he finishes, you know? when he right, finishes, let, that finish deserves a rebuttal. I, I, I also am capable of. of so Chris, go ahead. So that's so, okay. I think we'll just leave it there. Well, that, no, okay. So I'll pick it up. Okay, I'll, I'll pick it up. Um, without pa passing judgment one way or the other on Gaddafi, good leader or not, and I think I can I can say clearly that he wasn't. But. Allen presented evidence of what actually occurred in the major rebel-held cities up to Benghazi, prior to Benghazi. Now, it seems to me that the only way, maybe I'm missing something, but the only way beyond Gaddafi's rhetoric to say that his past behavior in the two weeks running up to Benghazi Something would have been very different about the conflict in Benghazi, about the, the operation in Benghazi. Is that what you're saying? Because the evidence prior to Benghazi is not of massive civilian casualties caused by indiscriminate violence waged but by he, the Libyan his, military. his forces were not in Benghazi. I mean, as Alan just showed, they had been pushed very far back, so I don't understand how... I mean, he had no capability to, to do anything. But in other rebel-held towns that he retook, that Libyan military forces retook, there had not been massive civilian casualties. I, I, I think that's fine. But I mean, the fact is, is that he didn't retake them militarily. I mean, what, what, what was different about Benghazi is that, A, he had stated that he was going to do this. And obviously, Alan has read, you know, different things than I have about, you know, what, what he stated. And I think that in any, in any case, you can obviously argue over uh, intent, um, but... The, the fact that he had uh, the most uh, sophisticated and advanced parts of his military bearing down on Benghazi, I think makes it really very, very different. If you have someone who says, I'm going to do A, 
and then they start acting like they're going to do A, uh, you know, my sense is that's enough to, to make the judgment that, yeah, they really mean it. And yeah, they're really going to do it. And the, and the other thing is, is that... What? Okay, so I think... So, okay, I, I get your point. The other cities have been effectively evacuated by rebel forces, so there was not right. heavy fighting. In the case of Benghazi, the rebel forces were going to fight and not evacuate. The city. This was their stronghold, yeah. All right. Does that mean uh -huh. tens of thousands of civilian killed? Or is it more of the pattern like we saw in the rest of the Civil War after our intervention, which is a roughly equivalent number of casualties on either side, most of them military forces. Uh, I, I, it doesn't I'm, matter. If, if it doesn't matter, if we say th that, that large-scale lo loss of life, it doesn't matter that civilians, even though, of course, the number one objective that President Obama cited in his speech was to protect civilians. The, those of us who study uh, you know, the wars of the last 10 or 20 years, um, I think it's pretty clear that it's not that easy to chase rebels out of an urban center. Um, and that, you know, if we think that Qaddafi could have simply rolled into Benghazi and accomplished something that we in 10 years in Iraq were unable to do in a number of Iraqi cities, I just think that that's, that's just fanciful. Okay. Uh, sir, you've been very patient. Sir, you, I was so nice and, and, and didn't interrupt, but you said I would get a chance on that no, one point. Thank you, Alan. So kind. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this has been very patient. Hello, my name is Richard Osborne, and I, I've heard a lot about the, the Mr. Obama's uh, stated goals of, of uh, limiting uh, death to, for civilians and making sure that, that other dictators elsewhere got the right message and um, I think spreading democracy. I, I, in a way, I feel as if I'm on another planet here because none of these really ever occurred to me uh, as, as, as particularly relevant. I understand when we have wars in other places, there are going to be a lot of people killed. Um, what exactly what's the United States' national interest in this? I mean, did we feel <clears throat> that, for instance, that, that Gaddafi had instigated the Lockerbie um, bombing and therefore he was a threat to us in the future? Do we feel that he was going to, to um, go back to trying to buy nuclear weapons, which apparently at one time he, he had planned to do before George uh, W. Bush invaded Iraq? Um, what exactly was it that we... Because we face these all the time. We face, so, we're facing them right now in, in, uh, in, uh, um, in the Crimea. Right. What is our national security? What's, what's, what's the, the national, What is the national security interest here? And, and is, is, that, is, is the humanitarian argument in itself a national security interest? And therefore, do we make the case for intervention on those grounds in addition to the proximate security challenges of which we think there were not many? Let's just get, let's get everyone's way. Chris, you want to weigh in, then I'll go across. Yeah, the I mean, I think that that's, this is a question that comes up a lot when I talk to people about the Libya intervention. Um, you know, the, the reality is, is that it's not the Cold War anymore, and our national security interests are, are complicated. And in most cases in the world, we're going to have not only multiple interests in play at any one time, but often conflicting interests as well. Um, and I think that it takes a lot for uh, our foreign policy to community to start sort of coming to terms with the fact that in almost very, very rarely is there going to be one overriding national security interest. In the case of Libya, um, yeah, so there was a humanitarian interest. This was a, a dictator who had turned the uh, violent, you know, the instruments of violence of the state uh, against his own people. Um, I think that, you know, given that we were able to do something about it in this case. We had an interest in doing so. There are cases where we simply can't, and I, and I fully accept that. 
Um, but in addition to that, we also, you know, not to demonstrate, you have to remember the context here was the beginning of the Arab Spring. And not to demonstrate that we were willing to stand up for uh, these, uh, these anti-totalitarian movements across the region would have been a, a very significant blow, not only to our prestige and influence in the region, but also, you know, the the, the the extent to which people would be willing to believe that the United States actually believes in, in defending democracy. Now, you can argue about whether or not that's a good objective, but if you accept that that's a good objective, that was the second interest that we had. And then the third, of course, as I said, was to support our allies. Um, this is, we forget, it may be, Libya may seem far away from us here, uh, but for our allies, uh, especially in Southern Europe, this was a much more pressing crisis not unlike the crises in the Balkans in the 1990s. Okay, so humanitarian and democracy promotion and our allies. One, two, three. Ben. Uh, well, I think we ought to have uh, allies for war, uh, not war for allies. And if it was a pressing problem for the Europeans, then by all means, uh, they ought to uh, handle it. Um, the, the president uh, said at one point when he gave a speech on the eve of war, saying, well, it's just there are these... Uh, moral reasons to do this, but there are also uh, national interests. And he talked about refugee flows, uh, which I think is actually argues the other way, because refugee flows are a way to escape uh, the uh, humanitarian disaster that we were supposed to be having a war to stop. But uh, he said, well, there's refugee flows, which could destabilize uh, neighboring states. And he made this argument as a national interest argument that uh, we had to uh, support uh, the Arab Spring. Um, so uh, I think it's for the reasons I gave, highly doubtful that that was a real uh, national security interest. And I also think uh, we ought to be realistic and say, look, it's not that we have national uh, security interests or we don't. We have really remote ones, like it would be somewhat better if this situation went this way as opposed to that way. Uh, or we have strong ones in some other places. And clearly, this was a case uh, where we had very, at best, remote uh, national security interests. And the president and uh, Robert Gates uh, basically said that, uh, well, Robert Gates certainly did, and the president more or less said that at a later point. Uh, so, but the point is, in a world where we face uh, very few adversaries, very few enemies with the capability to stop us, and we receive countless invitations to defend countries from uh, their own enemies, we're going to have lots of opportunities, many of which we'll probably take uh, to do these things, uh, to do things where we have no uh, national interest. That's the situation as a unipolar power. And I think we ought to be thinking about ways where we can restrain ourselves. There are things we could do. I got another talk I can give about that to restrain ourselves. But I think Alan needs to talk. Alan. Okay, so <clears throat> as my colleagues have said, there are two types of interests. There's traditional national interests, which is security and prosperity. And then there are these other interests, which I think do include, for example, preventing genocide. If the US had intervened against Libya in the 1990s, Arguably, we would have promoted both of those types of interests. Why? Because Gaddafi was, past tense, a bad guy in the 1990s. He was supporting terrorism, and he actually was quite repressive domestically. And he was pursuing weapons of mass destruction. But guess what? That all changed. That all changed nearly a decade before we belatedly decided to intervene against him. And by that point, he was a relatively good guy. He had given up his weapons of mass destruction entirely. He had stopped supporting terrorism and, in fact, was providing intelligence against al-Qaeda. He was our ally. 
And domestically, he was not, contrary to what you'll read in Chris's book, which says he remained one of the most repressive on earth. That is simply not true. Read the Human Rights Watch report from 2010. It doesn't mention any major human rights violations in the preceding decade in Libya. It points to things prior to 2000. Okay, why? Because he'd cleaned up his act. His government had even admitted to the one massacre that they had committed, which was in 1996 at a prison, and was paying compensation for it. So by the time we decided to intervene, we were intervening against the guy who was cleaning up his act domestically and was our ally internationally. So not only did it not promote those two interests, it undermined those two interests. And just lastly... Because Chris is saying, oh, you, you read different things. Well, I read what Gaddafi actually said. On March 17th, the day the UN uh, authorized intervention, two days before the bombing started, posted on the BBC, it says, quote, whoever joins us, we the people, the liberator, whoever hands over his weapons, this is Gaddafi, whoever stays at home without any weapons, whatever he did previously, he will be pardoned and protected. We will pardon anyone in the streets. Throw away your rifle in the streets. We will collect rifles from the streets. But if you enter any room with weapons, you'll be chased from the room to room. And whoever is found with weapons, it means he is an enemy. We have left the way open to them. Escape. Let those who escape go forever. Let them go to Egypt. Right? That was his plan. And you know what? They were going to Egypt until NATO decided to intervene. Sir, you, uh, you've been uh, most emphatic, please. Um, Bill Lawrence, uh, former North Africa Director for International Crisis Group, and we were on the ground uh, reporting this, and I, I, I have to say that although I agree with some of Mr. Friedman's points emphatically and other of his points partially, and a number of Mr. Cooperman's points um, uh, uh, are strong, and I agree with them as well, if the reality was on the ground the way he paints it, he's painting a picture of liberty, of, of excuse me, of Libya I've never seen. Yeah. This, 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 this painting he's giving Libya, we had 8,000 defections of pretty much all of Gaddafi's army in the east. That was gone. That's a long-term civil war. Uh, we had massacres in Zawiya, massacres in Tripoli. Now, Tripoli was dozens, Zawiya was hundreds. Um, and of course, we had this legacy of the 1,200 massacred in 96 in Benghazi and the 2005 uh, civilian massacres. And by no means was uh, 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 Gaddafi cleaning up his Human Rights Act in any palpable way. So what is, no, what no human rights, just one last point. What, no human rights organization was in. I worked hard as Libya desk at state to get Physician for Human Rights in just to help Fatih Jahmi get out to die in the hospital in Jordan. But the human rights reporting was awful on Libya, and if you looked at the 2005 protests in Benghazi, which was the precursor of the revolution, it's nothing like what was said. Gaddafi's crack forces were loyal to him, but the vast majority of his forces weren't fighting, and he was hiring uh, uh, mercenaries as far away as Mauritania and Palazzario because he couldn't even get bodies to... So, so what we're talking about is a wrong description of the way the war was going, a wrong dis uh, dis uh, dis uh, description of how Gaddafi was doing, and I had way too much faith in his words, oh my God. <laughs> all, of Gaddafi, uh, all of Libya was mocking them openly in the streets. Um, so, 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 so although I, I agree with a lot of these theoretical points, I like sort of the, the, the questions that are being asked. I'm, my question is to Mr. Shivas, it, is this not a Libya that, that, that's a very narrow sort of reading of a slice of the facts to make a point that really had nothing to do with the uh, very serious conflict that was going on that the majority of Libyan civilians 
uh, were, were going to engage in, as we saw in Tripoli in August 2011, when the city fell um, in, in, in 11 days uh, uh, very quickly. Oh, and ca uh, there was one point the gentleman made that I want to emphasize and just get your, because it seems that a lot of the difference, Chris, between you and Alan is over the likelihood that the war would have continued or would have been concluded on, on Gaddafi's terms. And again, we can debate about whether or not that's a good thing. But the key point is, would the Civil War have continued had the United States not intervened? You agree, Alan, that's also the critical question. Chris, so can you answer that question as well? As yeah, you? Bill, I'm really glad that you brought some facts into our discussion here, um, because it's not helpful to argue over facts. I mean, um, but the facts that I have are the ones that you were just uh, eloquently putting before us. I mean, I think there are four things, it seems to me, through this discussion that uh, Alan and I disagree about. The first is how you define success. Um, my definition of success certainly would have to do with what would have happened in, in Libya uh, had we not intervened. I, I definitely agree about that. But for me, it's not just a question of counting how many people would have died. There's a larger set of political factors here that also uh, really matter. And I've noted those. I mean, uh, Alan did say that uh, Clausewitz was his guide and talk about, and, and, and that politics ought to be the, the measure of success, but he hasn't actually talked much about politics. What he's talked about is how many people he thinks, uh, according to his assessment, uh, would have died. So that's our first difference. Um, you know, how do you, how do you measure success? I measure it uh, in a broader way, I think, than Alan does. Uh, second of all, the questions of what actually would have happened in Benghazi. I mean, this is really, you know, this is a, an argument that we can have back and forth. I'll just repeat again uh, that, you know, Qaddafi had stated his intent. Uh, he, had, he was acting upon it. Uh, and from what we know about modern warfare, uh, the idea that he was simply going to, you know, drive his tanks in there and take care of a couple rebels uh, is, is just fanciful. That's not how modern urban warfare works. The bigger question, which you're raising correctly, uh, is, you know, what would have happened uh, even if he had succeeded in that? Would Libya have avoided a broader conflagration? Um, and, and my view is that, that that's just not at all what would have happened. And the, the, without going into any great detail, the best example that I can give you again is what happened uh, in Syria. I mean, Syria is a case where we did, did not intervene. Things have gotten completely out of hand. We have hundreds of thousands of people who have been killed. Uh, and, and now the, the possibilities of intervention are, are very, very limited because we did not act early on in the campaign. And the fourth, just the... You got it. The fourth uh, and I think final uh, thing that I disagree with uh, Alan about is, is about Qaddafi himself, uh, whether or not this was a good guy. You know, someone who was ranked by most human rights organizations as being uh, on par with Lukashenko. Uh, you know, someone who, as Bill just pointed out, the vast majority of his population wanted to revolt against him. Um, and whether or not we could take someone like that by his word, which changed from day to day, was fairly crazed. Um, anyone who knows about, you know, the lifestyle that Qaddafi was leading uh, knows that. Um, you know, I just simply think that, you know, it's, it's impossible to avoid the fact that this was one of the world's uh, most totalitarian regimes that had turned the instruments of violence against its own people. And that that's something that, you know, no matter how much we may want to say, well, we, we don't care about that. I think it's very hard to, to call yourself a liberal or a neoliberal and genuinely not care about that. But let me pick up on one point. It was not just about the, the scale of the violence and what was likely to occur. And again, we're, we're in the realm of kind of speculation there. 
But it's also the fact that three years after the war, there is not a liberal democracy in Libya. There is not a democracy in Libya. There is not a functioning state in Libya. So if you say that one of your, your key criteria, Chris, is, is the polit- going back to Alan's original point, that, that you judge the success or failure of military intervention by the political consequences that result, surely you're not saying that Libya today is better than it was three years ago? No, not at all. I think that according, I think that Alan and I actually agree on how you should do the assessment. The assessment is about whether or not Libya today is better than it would have been given the direction that things are going. And I am the first to say that the situation in Libya today is not great. I've just written a report about it. I mean, and I, here I think is where we can be very critical about the policies that the international community pursued. And, and in particular, my view is that we should have done a heck of a lot more after Qaddafi died, and in fact, before Qaddafi died, to plan for the post-conflict period. The problem was is that, and this is sort of ironic, that in much the same way that after uh, Iraq, people thought that democracy would emerge spontaneously without any international help, without any planning, uh, it it has also failed to emerge uh, in Libya. All right, I have time for one more question. And yet, Ben? Thank you. Sir. Ben, your, your question is for Ben Friedman, even if it isn't intended for Ben Friedman. So, so make it a good one and direct it at my, my colleague, Ben, who, after all, did organize this event, so I figured it's the least um, I can do. Okay, very quickly, Mark Handy, Virginia Tech. Um, it's, we chose to go into this uh, Libyan operation uh, under a UN mandate to protect the civilians. In order to do that, we, uh, it looks like we, we certainly convinced the Russians and the Chinese to abstain. Since then, uh, President Putin has argued that we took the mandate to protect civilians as an elastic or an, as, a, as a rubber band, pulled it as wide as we could to do what we wanted to do. And that has been something he's used to argue against any intervention in Syria, and perhaps other states will use that uh, uh, in the future as well. I'm curious about your observations of um, perhaps war or intervention using, using a UN mandate under what others would consider to be false pretenses. Ben Friedman. Uh, well, I think you can choose to answer that question or another one. Yeah. <laughs> We're in Washington D.C., and that's how it's done here. So. Well, I, I, I agree with with uh, what what Chris said in his book, which it's true that we frayed relations uh, with Russia, and particularly with this. But if they were looking. Uh, for excuses to violate Ukraine's sovereignty based on past U.S. behavior. They didn't need Libya. I mean, we've mucked around uh, with people's sovereignty for a long time under various uh, legal pretexts. So uh, I I think, as I said, that, you know, in general, uh, the norm of sovereignty, which has eroded uh, lately, is a good one. I also don't – I think it's often honored in the breach, but it's it's, uh, – it's still uh, a good thing to have. Uh, I will let uh, Alan uh, speak for himself, but I think in response to your comments, uh, his analysis is nothing if not factual. And I think you raised an argument that, okay, uh, the Libyan military wasn't in uh, the greatest shape uh, when it might have gone into Benghazi, but that that doesn't really get after uh, the basic points that he made about uh, the counterfactual reality that we're living in. I I thought his uh, facts uh, didn't haven't really uh, been challenged here myself. I read the same quotes uh, from Gaddafi that Alan referred to. I I don't. I said myself. I don't think we should put a lot of stock in what he said. But when the administration and people advocating the war keep saying Gaddafi said he was going to kill all these people, and you say, look at what he said. He didn't say that. And they say, well, who cares what he said? You know, one way or the other. Okay. Um, 
if there's a secret transcript uh, of Gaddafi saying uh, on a radio or something, let's kill all these people, I'd love to see it. And I think that's why we ought to have debates in a U.S. Congress that cares about its power to authorize wars, to drag these people up in front of Congress and defend themselves. We ought to have a, a real uh, debate about these things if we can get it. Um, it's not the argument that, that uh, certainly not mine, I don't think Alan's, that uh, the Libyan military was going to come into Benghazi and not kill anyone or not harm any civilians. The point is, of course, urban warfare is going to kill a lot of people, many of them innocent. Uh, the point is, this is not different than most civil wars, which are messy and violent and full of moral atrocities, uh, but not a wanton slaughter of everyone who uh, wanders into uh, range. It's not an argument that Gaddafi was a nice guy. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, I just want to say a final point about credibility in, res in response to what Chris said. Um, do you think we have a reputation in the Middle East for being overly judicious and cautious about the use of force or something closer to the opposite. So I don't think what we really need in the Middle East is to go around showing how violent we can be to make sure people know we're tough. I think we've achieved that uh, through our past behavior. And in fact, we could use a, a reputation for uh, less recklessness. And for the reasons I uh, gave earlier, because credibility is always an argument for wars where we have very few interests. I think the fact that credibility is a leading argument for war ought to be a good reason uh, to suspect that it's not a good war to have if people are putting that argument out front. With that, hey, well, we're out of time. Oh, wait, I'm going to answer no, the guy's question. He's going to answer his question. Now he's going to answer his question. Let me just, let me, I just. I will last answer. one. Yeah, last. So um, there was a nice quote in a, a New York Times op-ed recently by Charles King of Georgetown University who said, just because Russians believe something doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> Right. Okay. And so the U.S. did abuse the mandate that it got at the U.N. Security Council. And we think, oh, well, that's, there's no cost. There's no cost. Well, you know what? There was a cost when Syria exploded. We went back to, and to the U.N. and we said, let's do something about Syria, which, which was the real kind of conflict that Chris Chivas says he's concerned about. They were targeting civilians in Syria, unlike in Libya. And we said to the Russians, let's do something. And they said, screw you. Right. You, you lied to us about, about Libya and you abused the mandate, so you're getting no mandate in Syria. There were real human consequences to that action. Two last things. Was there going to be a long protracted war in Libya without intervention? I, I really find that hard to believe for many reasons, okay? One, the rebels really were in retreat. Why hadn't they stopped to fight in any of the other towns that Gaddafi had kicked them out of? Because they were incapable of it. There was such a gross... Okay, Mr. Lawrence is correct that not the, regu the regular army wasn't loyal to Gaddafi. That's why they were poorly equipped. But Gaddafi's crack security forces were well-equipped, and they were kicking the butts of the rebels who had nothing. Okay, so you don't have to be great to run rebels out of town when they have nothing, and the rebels had nothing. And lastly on that point, why did the war in Syria go on so long? Because the rebels had rear bases and supply lines through Turkey, through Iraq. Where were these rebels going to get their weapons from? From sea? No. Gaddafi controlled the sea. From Egypt? I don't think so, right? So that's why I think, and then the last, last point, is life better? So here's a quote from Chris's book, page 175, quote, the situation in Libya is on many accounts better, better than it was when Gaddafi was there. Not better than it would have been, 
better than when Gaddafi was there. The intervention will have improved life for most Libyans. I will stipulate that life is much worse today for most Libyans than it was when Gaddafi was in power. When was or the last time you were been, in Tripoli? Or than no. it would have been if, if, if we hadn't intervened and this war had ended. They would be exporting six times more oil. They could walk down the street without getting kidnapped or killed. And that's, that's, that's a fairly important metric that we need to think about, right? That's what Clausewitz meant. War is the continuation of politics by other means. Did we achieve our political goals at an acceptable cost? No, we failed to achieve our political goals. And we actually made our, we undermined our political goals and made things worse in Libya. Thanks. I mean, I think, uh, you know, this is indicative of a real talent on Alan's part to sort of pick his uh, facts as he likes. I mean, to take a, a phrase of a few words out of context and the conclusions to what is uh, a very long book is, you know, it's something that you can do if you want to make a particular argument for ideological reasons. Um, my book is obviously based on a lot of uh, empirical research. I, I really hope you'll you'll take a look at it. Uh, it'll help you to see these things. Uh, it's extensively footnoted, um, very extensively in part because it had to go through a very thorough, not only quality assurance review, but also uh, a DOD uh, security review to ensure that there was no classified information in there. Um, so anyway, obviously there's a lot to talk about. Uh, hopefully all of you will pick up a copy of the book. The yeah. Cato Institute, we, uh, you know, you hear libertarians say they don't, we don't believe in a free lunch. That's not true. When, <laughs> when you come to our event and you sit and you listen to these three very knowledgeable people, please join me in, uh, in a round of applause for Chris, Alan, and Ben. <laughs> <laughs>